1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper and a huge welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. Delighted to be... Back with you, as always, for another week. I think this is the 322nd show. So we've been doing this for quite a while now, if you're listening for the first time. I think seven and a half years. Uh, and uh, the show keeps going on from strength to strength. And thank you so much for everybody who's sort of listening and, and people who take the time to send me comments. It's always appreciated. Uh, thank you for Jane, to Jane and Mysteries for sending me a message saying how great the show last week was with Chad Barr. And Chad talks about global digital empires and how to create your own. Uh, Chad's uh, an amazing guy based in Ohio and has a a global business. He helps people to build the most amazing websites, but also to build uh, their digital empires. And uh, we know, one guest that really stands out in my mind, because whenever I talk to him, I write about two or three pages of lots of notes on uh, on what he tells me because his uh, his thoughts and ideas are so valuable and unique. So if you're not listening to that, uh, do go and uh, check that out. Now, during my career, I was responsible for buying marketing services a number of years ago for um, a company called Mars Incorporated. You may know their confectionery brands and uh, electronics and various things. And um, these included uh, many large promotional and PR campaigns. I then set up and I ran an international marketing services buying function for United Biscuits. And that included buying lots of advertising and design and having a team across Europe Uh, And I went on to lead the buying all services for a pub and restaurant chain and then went into um, having my own procurement consultancy and I negotiated many deals once with uh, Manchester United and a sponsorship deal and um, spent, well, was involved with uh, negotiating millions of pounds of advertising deals and TV production. And I had the privilege to facilitate possibly 100 creative pitches during that time and um I moved on from procurement. I'm now very much involved with, with people development, but I have helped people to succeed in pitching from having that kind of experience. And I'm personally very interested in this whole area of engagement. And how do you engage with clients and help them to buy from you? I think is a really popular topic. And I was um, introduced to uh, Blair, my guest today. Um, Blair Ence is... Um, This was introduced to me by David C. Clarke, who was a great guest a few weeks ago. So so David C. Baker, sorry. Um, David was a brilliant um, guest on the show and and really, really interesting. If you're uh, wanting to be kind of a thought leader, do go and check that information out in, in the archive. And uh, I thought it would be wonderful to have a conversation today about win, winning without pitching. And this um, work that Blair and the, the book that he wrote on this, it absolutely caused a, a really a revolution amongst creative agencies um, around the world as they, you know, it was a complete game changer because we could spend and agencies could spend so much time and money investing in pitching processes and filling out some and creating um, long proposals and giving all their ideas away for free and i saw that on the other side as a client now uh, blair launched this revolution this this book the win without pitching manifesto in 2010 he's doing it again now so we're going to talk a little bit at the end about pricing creativity which is a guide to profit beyond the billable hours Um, um, is distilled it talks about pricing theory and principles rules and tips for creative professionals but everything we talk about today is also really valuable for anybody with a a business who sells services Uh, pricing creativity is the first pricing book based on the principles in the book it's available only at pricing creativity Dot com, and the book's available in multiple formats, ranging from hundred dollars to thousand dollars. So, uh, congratulations to Blair for doing that. I think my book sells for about a tenner. Um, so, Blair, an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
2: Uh, the pleasure is mine, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: You're, you're very welcome. And, and Blair, you're based over over in Canada and in, in British Columbia, which is actually a favourite part of the world of mine. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up. Um, living in Canada, you know where you originate from, and and also how you ended up supporting Liverpool.
2: <laughs> in your introduction, you mentioned two things that led me to believe this might be a contentious interview. <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned procurement and Manchester United.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife's a big Liverpool fan. We like Liverpool in our house, so it's not my yeah. first team, but I, I do like Liverpool. So.
2: Yeah, I was I was born in Canada, so that's how I ended up in Canada. I, I live in a tiny, uh, remote mountain village in rural British Columbia. So if you know Vancouver, I'm a short nine-hour drive from Vancouver. Um, <laughs> up until recently, a couple of years ago, I shared an office with a grizzly bear biologist and a bat biologist. Wow. So it's a pretty remote place. And the Liverpool story is... um. I kind of fell in love with... The, I hated soccer as a kid. I kind of fell in love with the sport watching the 2006 World Cup. Um, I kind of... I was really impressed by one player, Steven Gerrard. And then shortly after that World Cup, I started to travel to the UK every year, multiple times every year, in fact, and, uh, and uh, started to watch... Uh, started to watch games live and kind of really fell in love with the sport and fell for a player and adopted his team. So I've been a Liverpool supporter ever since. And as, as of this live broadcast, Liverpool is top of the league by one point. So and they haven't won it in 29 years. So here's hoping this is our year. I mean, your team won it two years ago. So it's only fair that my team wins this year, right?
1: Absolutely. We were the biggest shock in football history.
2: <laughs> it was an incredible story. Leicester City, yeah.
1: Five thousand to one odds. I wish I put some money on at the beginning of yeah.
2: the season. <laughs> you and me both, brother. <laughs>
1: um, well, uh, I'm also kind of intrigued. Why, um, why coming over to the UK if you live somewhere very beautiful in British Columbia? Because it's a, a, a lovely
2: area. Uh, My business, Win Without Pitching, is a uh, sales training organization for creative professionals. But back when I launched it in 2002, it was a solo consultancy practice. So I do a lot of public speaking, especially since my first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, came out in 2010. But even before then, I was doing a lot of public speaking. So I would do speaking as a way of... Uh, generating new business. And I was invited over to speak by the Design Business Association, um, an organization I have a very good relationship with in the UK. I was invited to speak in 2006 or 2007, and I've since spoken to audiences of theirs many, many times, as well as many other audiences in the UK.
1: Excellent. Well, they certainly got a big uh, sort of creative industry here in here in London, so I can, I can understand that. So tell us a little bit about why you know, why pitching has been such a challenge from your perspective in the creative industry?
2: Yeah. So for your listeners who maybe aren't in the creative industry, uh, the the pitch might mean something a little bit different in different industries. And, you know, if you're trying to raise money, it's a similar idea, but it's that the dynamics are a little bit different. But in the creative professions, it started with advertising. So it's sometimes referred to as the advertising disease. And on, in continental Europe, it's sometimes referred to as the English disease. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're at the epicenter of it all. Um, and the pitch is uh, is essentially, it's a formalized buying approach that's used by clients um, to, and it's not the the responsibility isn't all in the clients The agencies are addicted to it, where the agencies come in and pitch their ideas for the creative campaign. And the history of it is, uh, the real money in the advertising account, if you wanted to win the account, you you would give the creative or the, the campaign ideas away for free because the real money was in the media commissions. Now the media commissions are, they're not long gone, but the way that the way that agencies earn money now is different, so the pitch isn't as relevant from that point of view. But it's really—I like to say—it's really—it's a lot like a drug deal, I imagine, in that you've got one party has these ideas and the other party has the money, and one one wants to see the goods before they part with the money. So there's this kind of uh, tense moment where you know the client isn't really sure what they're buying, so they want to see it, and so they're invited. The agency is invited to uh, cross the line that separates. Improving their ability to solve the client's problem from actually solving their problem. And they give their highest value product, their thinking, away for free as a means of earning the business. So that's a, it's, um, Again, it started in advertising. It spread to design. We work with professionals in advertising design and other related creative professions. And it's just become calcified on both sides of the table. The uh, the clients expect it and the agencies expect that this is the way it has to be done. Um, It's not the way it has to be done. And we're essentially in the deprogramming business. We deprogram creative professionals of their own kind of internal reasons why it makes sense for them to to sell this way which is a hugely inefficient way to sell
1: are you, are you finding are you finding clients now might um you know be prepared to pay for people to go through these uh, this pitch sort of process and take these ideas or or has that, is that yeah.
2: come across now there's always trends in that uh, in in how Uh, the dynamics are changing so for a while there and even now some clients are willing to pay for a pitch but it's still i'm not a big fan of it um i actually one of the approaches we teach is if if you have a if if you have a client who's um who's got say um, talking to five different firms and they have 20 grand um whether it's dollars or pounds, they have 20 grand that they're paying each agency to come in and present some ideas. Typically, if you look at the cost side of it, the cost for an agency to, to pitch something where they're getting paid 20 grand for, usually they put around 100 grand worth of time into it. So it's not even a fair compensation. So one of the approaches I like is if is uh, you ask the client? Well, if you're going to pay five different firms twenty grand, why don't you give us the hundred grand? And and sometimes it's not yeah. twenty. Maybe it's ten. Whatever the number is, why don't you give us that money? Why don't you, instead of keeping us at arm's length and asking us to pitch free ideas and free strategy, you know, to essentially take a whole bunch of guesses, why don't you work with us the way? we uh, we expect our clients to work with us. And we'll take you to the end of the first phase of the engagement where we'll devise a strategy and the creative concepts and the initial creative campaign. And then at the end of that phase or stage, um, if you if we haven't given you what what you're looking for. If you don't feel like this is going to be a meaningful, fruitful, rewarding relationship, then we'll part company at that point and we'll give you your money back. So
0: mm-hmm. that's
2: just one example of trying to derail a, a pitch. I don't think I don't think paying a little bit of money underpaying multiple firms to come in and do a whole bunch of guesswork gets anybody any closer to a better quality advertising and a better relationship and b um, a more fruitful lucrative relationship for the agency.
1: Yeah, that's it's interesting. Apologies if you hear any little sounds in the background. I've been uh, not 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 um, joined by a grizzly bear, but a big labradoodle. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how he managed to get through two doors, but he's um, he's joined me, and so he's uh, making a little noise in the background. So I shall get rid of him uh, nicely in the commercial break, but um, uh, it's not me making those sort of slathering noises. Um, so, I, I, I absolutely. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, in kind of life, how we kind of get into these patterns of behavior and, and pitchings. Pitching is one of those, and obviously I, I've experienced a lot of lots of those as a, a sort of client. And I'm just interested to in you know how the book that you wrote, I know it was really kind of disrupted the industry. Um, how did it do that?
2: Yeah, how, how did it disrupt the industry? I'm not sure. I mean, the book's been out for eight years, and um, sales – yeah, on an annual basis, keep going up by an actually an incredible. Like sales were up 87 percent last year and seventy four percent the year before. So it just it's really, it was a bit of a niche book that kind of found its audience and sold steadily for the first few years, and then after about four years, sales just kind of doubled or almost doubled every year, to the point where, um, it's just kind of sweeping like wildfire through the professions, and I think it was a. I think it was a voice that hadn't previously been heard. There's always been consternation over and hand wringing over kind of the pitch on the agency side over the fact that um, creative professionals feel devalued, underappreciated when they're when they're um, asked to sell their services this way. And there's been a lot of discussion about how we should get rid of free pitching, but the discussion has always been why don't we how can we as an industry essentially abolish it how can we dictate to the client how our services should be bought and sold and of course the solution isn't to change the industry i came along and said it's forget about the industry it's you change it's it's you it's always been you it it's the things that you are doing and and i think i was the first one to say you know you really can win without pitching i think others out there had given the idea lip service before um But nobody had really stood up and said, yeah, you can walk away from uh, free pitching and and the business results will be better, not worse. So I think I was the the first one to stand up with conviction and to say that this can be done. And and to this day, I would say there are a lot of people who have read the book or have been exposed to my messages and have have thought, yeah, nice, nice theory, but it can't really be done in my business.
1: Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly know myself from having been on the other side of the pitch that you know those agencies who are able to build a special relationship with the client behind the scenes, you uh, know, probably stand a, a slightly better better chance of success because um, it is a you know, it's not it's about
2: ideas but it's also about um, how well you gel. Um, I think. Yeah, it's about the, the chemistry, the rapport, the trust. But I don't think those things are as valued, valued as deeply as expertise. I think at the end of the day, if you want to be able to disrupt a competitive pitch, um, you need to be seen as meaningfully different. So the approach that we teach in our training program, you're constantly... Um, Uh, the agency, we ask ask the agency, the creative professional to push back on a flawed selection process to challenge the client's ideas of what the problem is and what their solution might be. And by doing some of these things, maybe saying no, maybe asking for a concession and then pausing and waiting to see how the client responds, then they get a sense of how much power they have in the buy-sell relationship. And power might be kind of a might not be the right word. It's the word that I use, but, but what you're doing when you, when you say no, rather than being the polite, compliant rule follower in the pitch, um, by saying what's actually on your mind, by challenging what you think needs to be challenged. Um, you're creating these dynamics where you will get some information back from the client. You're going to get information back on how meaningfully different you, you, your firm, and your offering is seen to be. And maybe we'll talk about this after the break. But that that oversupply of undifferentiated creative firms that is at the root of the free pitching problem.
1: Yeah. so so people think, well, who who could do this? There's so many firms out there, so let's get five in and see what they have to say, <laughs> and then we'll uh, yeah make a decision based upon that create a brief and make a decision based on that well, let's go to commercial break and i know there's um, 12 proclamations in the book and we haven't got time to cover all of those people need to need to go and buy the book but um let's talk about a few of those the, the really kind of you know a few of the key ones that can help people get their heads around this and and appreciate that actually there's more to it than just uh, a nice idea so we we'll be back again in just a couple of minutes do just hang on and join us shortly
0: are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Blair Enns, and we're talking about winning without pitching. And uh, my dog is now happily... Um, eating and out of a bowl of food, so hopefully he won't be joining us again over the next um, 15 or 20 minutes. So, Blair, let's let's talk about some of the proclamations in your book. I know uh, one of the ones that you particularly wanted to talk about is We Will Specialize, so tell me a little bit about specialization.
2: Yeah, it's the first proclamation of the book, 12 chapters essentially, um, they all kind of build, each, build on each other. And the first one is that we will specialize. And I mentioned before the break that the biggest driving force of kind of the lack of power in the buy-sell relationship that creative professionals experience is an oversupply of undifferentiated firms. So my first call to them is to to narrow their focus. Um, I think in a creative firm and in a professional firm of any kind, the only real meaningful way to set yourself apart from your competition is through the depth of your expertise. And in a lot of businesses and creative businesses in particular, uh, if you want to deepen your expertise, you need to narrow your focus. And this kind of gets to the heart of the free free pitching problem, I think. Um, The uh, creative professions of advertising and design aren't the only ones that suffer from an oversupply of undifferentiated firms. But what's really interesting, at least to me, is that um, there is something about creativity, about being a creative person that contributes to the oversupply problem. And that is when we start to understand what creativity is creativity is essentially the ability to see it is the ability to it's not the ability to write or draw that's what goes by the term personal creativity and this is a thinking that comes from a psychologist named Mahai Chiksent who's famous for coining the term flow state so he studies yeah. happiness creativity and I think a lot of people have heard that t- term in the state of flow. Yeah. That comes from Sant Mahai. And what he says is creativity is the ability to see, it's not the ability to write or draw. So when you so it's really the ability to bring a novel perspective to a problem. A creative person's skill or talent is the ability to think about a problem different differently than it's been thought about before. So if that's you, if you're a creative person, your strength is solving the problem that you have not previously solved. You will therefore build a business, or you're likely to build a business that allows you to play to that strengths and your 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 kind of personal need to solve these different problems. So you will build a kind of a broadly positioned, or kind of a. Um, uh, w- A weak strategy firm where you're not you that allows you to solve all kinds of different problems for all kinds of different people, but even though that's what you, the creative person, want personally, your business, like any other business, benefits from focus. And my colleague and uh, podcast co-host David C. Baker, who you mentioned, he's been on your show before he's famous for saying, talking about you know, pattern matching. When you are an expert at what you do, when you kind of narrow your focus to a, a more narrow range, the benefit is you start to see patterns right away. And that helps drive the depth of your expertise. So the world I operate in, in these creative professionals, there are all of these creative businesses that are too broadly positioned. So if you think of the best ad agencies in the world, um, they, they're not all that different from each other. They all strive to um, differentiate themselves through the quality of their crea- uh, creative, through being more creative. And nobody can ever own that position over the long term. It's a function of the different people that come and go. There's always a hot shop, and then that hot shop wanes at some point. Um, and if these firms really want to make a meaningful difference, they need to focus either in a, focus on a, On a discipline like narrow it in from advertising so you get into um in the design world it could be you go from generalist design to web design even that's broad to ux design so the first variable is discipline and the second one is market who do you do it for do you do it for everybody or do you just do it for b2b or b2b technology brands or um i was talking to a small firm the other day that does um Uh, Digital advertising for gaming businesses, casinos, et cetera, et cetera. That's fairly niche. Now, something that niche doesn't scale to large agencies. So, as you get to really large global agencies, how you specialize becomes a little bit different. But that is the first proclamation: we will specialize, and we will, we will endeavor to essentially fight our own desire to build a business that allows us to do everything for everybody. And we will. The metaphor I like to use is: you're standing in in a room full of doors and being a highly curious creative problem solver you want to structure a business that allows you to walk through every door and i'm standing over your shoulder saying no you need to pick a door and walk through it yeah and never look back
1: yeah yeah and it it requires a a certain amount of bravery doesn't it to make that transition
2: yeah (laughs) but that you to enjoy variety it's again. It speaks to the source of the power in the buy sell relationship. So I'll ask an audience full of creative professionals who, in the in the typical buy sell cycle, who has the power? You or the client? And everybody will say, well, it's usually the client. And then I'll ask, uh, what's the source of the client's power? And they'll say the client's checkbook or their money, and that's always the first answer. It's not the right answer. The answer is oversupply, the the availability of substitutes. If the client looks at you and sees themselves as having four or five alternatives to hiring you or 45 or 4,500, then they have all the power in the buy-sell relationship. So, you, you regain power by eliminating the availability or reducing the availability of substitutes. And that's what positioning or fundamental business strategy endeavors to do is to set yourself apart, set your business apart from these other firms in a meaningful way. And again, the only real meaningful way to do that in a creative firm, I believe, is through the deepening of your expertise and you do that through narrowing your focus or specializing.
1: Right. So the next proclamation was to replace presentations with conversations, and I'm kind of interested, you know, how you how you go about uh, go about doing that, and uh, and you know avoiding being regularly involved with beauty parades. But I'm guessing your first yeah. your first answer probably partly explained that by niching down, and not having many substitutes.
2: Well, here's another peculiarity about the creative personality. For reasons I don't fully understand if you are if you're a creative person if you have this ability to uh bring novel perspective to a situation you have an equal um kind of a matched skill set and that matched skill is the ability to think on your feet and again i don't understand why these two things are related but i have an objective assessment i've run on thousands of people and i see the correlation is clear as day so the more creative you are, the better you are at thinking on your feet. So, as I say in the second proclamation of the Win Without Pitching manifesto, um, there's a dirty little secret in the creative professions. The dirty little secret secret is we are hooked on the presentation. We are addicted to that moment when we're standing up in front of the client and we have the work. If it's like a if it's a creative campaign, it might be mounted on a board in the old days, and now it's on a keynote or a PowerPoint presentation but we're standing up in front of the client and we've got we're not about to show the work yet and we're doing this big build up of the work that we're going to share and the client's waiting in anticipation and it's in that moment where we're building up to the big reveal so my, my palms are sweating right now i've been miming this for 18 years and i did it for a dozen years before that um, and I, my palms still get sweaty when I talk about this, when I'm imagining myself in that situation. And you mm-hmm. talk about a flow state. That's when we are in that flow state. People who love thinking on their feet or very good at thinking on their feet, they love being in that moment in the room when they're about to present the work and they don't know what's going to happen next. Either I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this board around, I'm going to show you the work that we've come up with for your account and I'm going to get this adulation where people say, oh, you're a genius, Blair. You're, this is fantastic. We love it. Or it's crickets. I'm going to hear silence, this uncomfortable silence. And that standing at the precipice in that moment of not, not knowing, creative people are addicted to that moment. They love presenting so much that they're willing to do it for free in the pitch. And until I, what I say to my audience is, until you acknowledge that you are addicted to this moment, that the presentation usually doesn't need to exist and it exists only for your personal reason and that you need to overcome this addiction. Until you recognize that, you will never be free of the pitch. We are addicted to presenting and a big part of what we do in our training program is just try to break down the presentations and and not – Create a condition, not create a scenario where we're manufacturing a reason for a presentation when we really just should be having a conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think we we used to find sort of, I suppose, a frustration sometimes in the pitch process was um, having you know the leaders of these businesses who are addicted to the presentation come and you know wow us. and on one occasion i even remember somebody powerpoint breaking down so we decided to get on the table and uh, and perform in front of us and uh, people would get <laughs> people would get very excited in those sorts of processes and there'll be lots of energy and there'll be lots of ego flying around and um and then uh, when they you make your selection, if you hadn't worked with them before, uh, the next thing is the account team turn up and they're completely different. <laughs> so <laughs> used to be these yep. uh, flamboyant people at the helm, you know, and then, uh, you know, we would want to be quite clear to also meet the account team before making a decision.
2: And they're quite different. It's like the cotton candy rush is over. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That,
1: but like, yeah. But I really, I get, I get, I get that thing. So you got to break, you got to break that down. And because uh, I think you're right, you do kind of attract, don't you? You know what you enjoy doing. Often, you would. You
2: yeah, and by the way, you're being. And as you pointed out, you know, clients are. We've set the conditions where clients are used to this now. Now, if you come in and you try not to present, then you try to do something other than present. You you do have to kind of break some calcified you know, buying processes too, or challenge them. But I, I think sometimes it's, if you know, in a world where it's, 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 it's difficult to be seen as better. Sometimes you try to just be seen as different. So I, I'm in favor of an approach of a selling approach that's just different from what everybody else is doing. I think, you know, if you follow the best of the best of bad practices are still bad practices, you know, and back to the, you know, the, the the uh, pre- presenting versus conversing, I'm repeatedly making the point to my audience that you people are horrible at conversationalists. And they might laugh and go, yeah, okay, you're probably right. But they don't really believe it um, until I prove it. And I can prove it through some exercises. But I say, just think of how this works. Just think There's very little two-way conversation in our relationships with clients. So what happens is The client decides they need to hire a new ad agency. They decide amongst themselves. And then amongst themselves, they will select four or five agencies or maybe a dozen agencies to... Uh, To go through the first step, and they'll lob a, a an an RFP, a request for proposal, to a dozen agencies, and they tell those agencies, "You we can't." They keep them at arm's length and say, "You're not really allowed to talk to us." So the agencies get the brief in the form of this RFP, and then they talk amongst themselves, and they come up with their response to the brief, and then they lob it back over to the client, and then the client, without you know having further conversations with the agency they decide amongst themselves okay well these these 5 look like they might be a really good fit so they they create a new brief and they lob the new brief over to five firms and still the firms aren't allowed to ask very many questions and these five firms take the brief and then they come in and they they present their uh, response to the second brief. And the client sits there with their arms crossed and they nod and they say, this is great. Thank you. We'll get back to you. And the agency goes away and the client huddles again. I'm sure you recognize this <laughs> process, Chris, right? And then then they they choose an agency and they say to the final agency, okay, you're you're the winner. Now here's the real brief. And so all of our communication in this client-agency relationship in the creative world, all of our communication is one way at a time. We we have not been conversing with each other for decades, and it is so highly ingrained on both sides of the table that when I start to workshop exercises around having conversations instead of presentations with the creative professionals in ad agencies and design firms who are my clients... They really struggle. They go into presentation mode. And I always say, you can present to somebody or you can be present to them. You can't do both. And you're going to need to choose. As soon as you're presenting, you're transmitting and you are no longer receiving. You send all kinds of signals to the other party that I'm not paying attention to you. This is all about me. And so these are really highly ingrained habits. They're really difficult to break down. Um, But it's just been, I've been just struck by this repeatedly over and over again about how we have forgotten to converse in a business context in a creative firm.
1: And and is that why sometimes the the money can become a problem Um, because we don't converse about it enough and early enough?
2: Yeah, so the last four proclamations in the book are the the money proclamations and um, we don't we don't talk about money. So you know, I'll do a survey and even ask the listeners, like, hey, how many of you are? are you, uh, do you find money conversations stressful? And the majority of people will admit that, yeah, I find money conversations stressful. And then I'll ask them, well, what do you, what's the source of stress? Like, when you think about the stress in your life, what is the source of most of your stress? And the answer is stress is caused by the things that you don't do. So the reason we find money conversations difficult is because we're not having them. <laughs> yes. So one of my rules is you talk money early and often. You talk money early and often. And uh, my uh, I have this win without pitching rule of money, and that is those who don't talk about it don't make it. And when you get into the smaller firms, I know your experiences with the dealing with the larger agencies, but when you get into the smaller firms where the the principle is the The principal owner is the creative person and the salesperson. That person finds it really difficult to have money conversations because they see themselves as a creator first or maybe an artist first. And a lot of them, their creating is their calling and they've decided to make their calling their enterprise. And they really struggle with standing up in front of a client and asking for the money that they feel or they that they need to get to be able to provide the service they're providing. And any rejection on that front is seen as a personal rejection?
1: Uh, yeah, um, I have to say, I've uh, experienced that myself and uh, in my
2: with with the work that I do,
1: actually not having had the money conversation early enough, and uh, coming back with a very nice proposal, thinking that's what the client wanted, and actually at the end of the day, they just wanted to pay me a daily rate. And, um, yeah, or, uh, you or know, you wasted do the a big... whole lot of efforts, you know, really putting packaging up proposals and options to them when actually uh, it wasn't how they wanted to buy. It was my own fault. Yes.
2: Yes. And then they flip to the last page of your proposal, look at the price and say, we don't have 10,000 pounds or we don't have 100,000 yeah. yeah. pounds.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we we pay our other other people in your sort of category this this and this and so yeah I I um, went through that only um, beginning of last year and uh, was reminded of the importance of it so it's uh, it comes close to home. Well, we're going to go to commercial break again now and uh, we'll just have a uh, just finish off on um, when without pitching. I know there's lots more um, good pointers from Blair in his book and, and we'll have a little chat about pricing creativity as well because I know that's a, another book that's also starting to have a real impact on. Uh, on this industry. So it'd be good to, to chat about pricing because it's linked into what we've just been talking about around money um, and can be quite a, a sort of a, an issue that we we duck and dive around. So I'm looking forward to getting your, your viewpoints on that in a moment. So we're back again in just a couple of minutes.
0: facilitated leader development workshops and speeches email info at be to arrange a free no obligation consultation to see how chris and his team can help you have you become a
2: member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy
0: You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. and am with Blair Ends. We are talking about win without pitching. And so far, what I've kind of taken from the conversation is you know, a reminder how important it is to specialise and uh, you know, p- go through that one door rather than through lots of doors. Uh, that we need to be having you know much more conversations and uh, and early on and through a relationship and really trying to avoid that situation where we become a you know a contestant in a beauty parade. Uh, we should also have those conversations around money uh, early, regularly, and often. And um, I'm kind of also um, interested just to you know to just explain. You know, understand as well you know what should we be charging because uh, sometimes we can be charging too little sometimes we can be charging too much so you know how where does that fit into this equation Blair
2: yeah and so my most recent book is called pricing creativity a guide to profit beyond the billable hour it's really a, a value-based pricing book or a guide to value-based pricing for creative professionals and um you know there's there's uh there's no short answer to that question, Chris. But it's um, in a nutshell, there there are three things that you anybody can price and sell. You can sell the inputs of time and material. You can price and sell time and material, and that's probably the standard. Uh, not probably that is by far the most common pricing method used among creative firms and most professional firms as well. You can sell, price and sell the outputs of what it is that you're delivering, the campaign, the website, the app, etc. Or you can sell the outcomes of the value, sell and price the outcomes of the value that you create for the clients. And that that last one is the highest echelon of pricing where you can not only make the most money, you can have your, the biggest impact on your clients' businesses. Um, so the short answer is wherever possible, you want to learn to price and sell Based on the outcomes that you propose to deliver for your client, not based on the inputs of time and materials, and not based on the market value I'm using air quotes now, not based on the market value of of um, the uh, the outputs or the deliverables.
1: And how do people in in the sort of creative industry really go about doing that? and making that shift into, into a value model when there's uh, you know, maybe procurement people who try and strip it back to a time and materials model.
2: Yeah, so everything gets more difficult as you start to deal with your your former brethren in the procurement world. Um, <laughs> there's a, a gentleman by the name of Reed Holden who's written some great books on pricing and also a very good book on negotiating. He's got a great line that I love to quote. It's eighty percent of procurement people give the other twenty percent a bad name, and I'm sure you were in the <laughs> in the twenty percent, Chris. <laughs> i love to make poke fun of (laughs) procurement people um because i fundamentally believe that in most procurement of creative marketing and professional services there's still a widget procurement approach being applied where it's not really about value creation it's not really about increasing the value it's about driving costs down and if you want to uh if you want to find a way to make a service cheaper, the cheap the way you make it cheaper is you put less expensive people on it, so you can't it's really hard to impact the cost side of the value equation without driving the value down, and that's why former p and g procurement um Man, uh, Jerry Priest has written a really good book on marketing procurement. And it's called "Buying Less for Less," and it's really his point is, you know, as you drive the price down, what it is you buy end up buying less of what it is that you're buying. Um, so it's really it gets more difficult as as professional purchasers get involved. And one thing that I see over and over again, I was had dinner with a president of a. National president of one of the world's global ad agencies, a famous one that everybody would know, and he was telling me a story about um, having to deal with procurement on a really large account that they had a they had won the pitch and then they got beat up by procurement. And I said to him, "Why is it that you look? Why is it the UN and, and these two other people on your team are going in and negotiating with professional purchasers? Um, a, they're not emotionally invested. You're." you're deeply emotionally invested in the work. B, they're trained in negotiating. You are not trained. C, they are working from a position of policy and you are working from a position of preferences and inclinations. You, you're you going to lose every single time. And that's, that's one of the challenges in dealing with procurement that I think agencies just have not stepped up. I do not know why. I do not know why they send in. When the client hands off... The negotiation to the professionals on their end. Why aren't the agencies handing off the negotiations to the professionals on their end? And then you have two trained parties, who are uh, neither of which are emotionally invested in the work, and they can fight it out and with the, with their set of rules. Like when you when you have a creative person battling it out with a procurement person, it's just like two different worlds colliding. Um, nothing good is ever going to come from it from the creative person side. So it it is it does. I've forgotten your question now. I've just yeah. <laughs> gone in this procurement rant.
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm uh, very much. Uh, I, I'm kind of, you know, I, I left that world because of frustration, actually, at times. And uh, you know, to to you know, I, I, I'm working in the Mars environment when I worked there. Actually, I worked in a function which was called supply development, and we were very much looking at how can we. know boost the relationships and we and cost really wasn't a a high priority you know stripping cost wasn't a a high priority it was about getting the best value um, and uh, making projects work most effectively and and actually um, treating suppliers more fairly and and ethically and involving them in your business and motivating them and inspiring you and uh, but some of my other assignments later on in in my career became um, you know more so about um, stripping costs out of uh, out of projects and and I also have um, I've fallen foul myself um, since, where you know I've gone in with, with with really good training and development projects, and you know I've, t- I've taken people through journeys. I've got evidence where this has worked before, and then you find yourself um, you know agreeing something with the client, getting past the procurement, and they're suddenly saying, "Well, that five days you could do that in a day." <laughs> yeah, and, and they haven't got a clue, uh, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. I've, I've felt that myself now, even though I've been in that world that um, I feel in a very different place sometimes to those people. And what I find myself doing is avoiding companies which have got strong procurement teams.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the the good examples of the good procurement people out there who do understand that it still is about value creation, they're such an inspiration. There's just not enough of them. And I don't mean to lay it all at the blame of the procurement people because – Almost, you know, I made the observation recently that, you know, the best clients for an agency or for creative, if you're talking about the largest clients in the world, if you, if you look at their stock price, if there's, if the stock is trading at a growth multiple, if it's still seen as a growth stock, this is a company that's innovating and is likely to see marketing or creative, whatever the service they're buying as an investment. And they're willing to invest in innovation. As soon as the stock is seen as an income or a dividend stock, then the innovation, the company is no longer truly innovating. They might still be paying lip service to innovation, but it's now really about efficiencies. The business is really being run by accountants. And now the services that they're procuring are no longer investments in innovation. They are expenses to be managed. So if you're running a large uh, creative firm out there and you're trying to think of, well, where's the line? Like who's a good client? Who's the bad client? Um, I think you just look at the multiple, the stocks trading it and just say, does the market value this as a growth stock? If it does, then it's almost certainly still innovating. And if it doesn't, that's probably not... The best client. I tweeted the other day uh, an exchange I had with an agency principal. He made a he pointed out a really large brand. It's in the automotive space. They're working with one smaller brand, and he said, "Well, I would really love to work with that larger brand." And I said, "Yeah, but would you want to work with their procurement department?" And I think that's a question that people on the agency side don't ask often enough. They get enamored with the large brand and the large budget. But often those large brands, those large budgets, if they're not innovating and the market doesn't, you know, through the stock price and specifically the multiple of earnings, doesn't see that they're innovating, then they're probably not. Even though the budget size is there, you're going to get beat up. They're going to see what you do as an expense to be managed rather than an investment to be made.
1: Yeah, good. uh, Good. Good advice there. Tell tell us a bit about um, we've got a few minutes left. Just. You know, about how you, you know, your ideal client and the the kinds of people that you you help and and how how the ways that you help them.
2: Yeah, so we've talked a lot about large agencies, um, but really I built this business, this training business, to um, to focus on the independent. So I have I've written an article on it. It's on my website, uh, winwithoutpitching.com. dot com. And the article is called, There is a Woman, I See Her Clearly. And so you talk about your why. Simon Sinek talks about your why. Like, why why do you do what you do? And I always, so I always imagine when I'm thinking about why we're doing this, I imagine a solo designer, it's usually a woman. And I see her, she's gone through design school. She's decided that she has this gift or this calling. She's a creator. She is put on this earth to create. And she decides to Uh, to make the leap, to make her, her, her calling, her passion, her business. So she opens up a design firm and has some initial success, but she really didn't sign up for the business part of it. The business part of it is she finds difficult, and the most difficult part of all of that is selling. So I imagine this person, again, usually a woman, but it could be a man, standing up in front of a prospective client. And the prospective client is... Is r- is running her through the procurement process, and she's she's vulnerable. She didn't sign up for this. She did her idea of what it means to sell is kind of a uh, a dirty. She has this dirty idea of what it, what it means to sell. She thinks it means talking people into things. She doesn't. She's not equipped to do this. It's it is uh, it is her most vulnerable professional moment, and uh, I built my business to help that person in that moment and I often say if that to my team if that's all we ever do if that's all I ever do for the rest of my career that will be enough for me that person who is standing there who has who who has this high higher calling I'm on this earth for a reason I'm bringing my gifts to bear but I'm finding it really difficult in this moment I feel really vulnerable I don't know what I'm doing that's those are the people that we help
1: fantastic and have you got a final message you'd like to leave us with
2: yeah, I, I really enjoyed. I mean, we didn't we didn't get too much into value based pricing, um, which is the subject of my most recent book, Pricing Creativity: A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. But I I wanted to say, like, when I'm doing a lot of, talk, I've traveled the world a lot in the last uh, thirteen months talking about the book and value-based pricing. And I've done a lot of training workshops and um, I always begin every talk now or workshop with asking people, what do you think the goal of value-based pricing is? And the answer is almost always to charge more. And then I keep throughout the talk or the day, I keep asking the question, what do you think the goal of value-based pricing is? And at some point, um people largely get to the conclusion the correct conclusion and the the correct conclusion or the correct uh, goal of value based pricing it's not to charge more that is just a delightful consequence the goal of value based pricing is to create an organization where it's not all about you. It's not about you standing up doing a presentation. It's not all about your services and how you do what you do and what you'll charge. The goal of value-based pricing is to create an organization that is intently focused on extraordinary value creation for the client. Now, you hear me say that and you think, oh yeah, it makes sense, it's a good theory. For reasons we've already talked about, in particular how horrible we in the creative professions are at conversations this is very difficult for a creative firm to do they they very quickly go into presentation mode the presentation is always about them so i teach you know in the whole banner of value based pricing the most important thing where value based pricing theory goes to die is the value conversation the value conversation is where the seller focuses on the client and the customer and asks what is it that you want what's your desired future state in my language what are the metrics of success that will measure to to see whether or not you've achieved what you want what's the value that we might create here and then finally if I could help you create this value what would you pay for that? That's a simple four-step framework. It's universal across anybody who wants to sell value. And creative people have a hard time doing it because it requires you have a real conversation where you're focused on the client. And the entire success of it is rooted in the idea that you have to let go of solutions. You go into that conversation not thinking about you, what might you might do, what you usually charge. It's really about putting the client first. That's the goal of value-based pricing. It's easy to understand, but it's really hard to do, especially in a culture of presenting, because in that culture, it's always all about you.
1: Fantastic. Blair, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've uh, found the conversation fascinating. Um, I think there's an awful lot of value in here for anybody in that sort of creative space to think this through. And um, think more about um, you know how to avoid those pitches by by being different and uh, I think being more present and, and being focused upon uh, how you build your business. So it's maximizing the value because if you do and do that in a specialist way, people will want to pay for that. Um, so I recommend to people do check um, win without pitching out and pricing creativity um, to, to find out a little bit more, you can go to winwithoutpitching.com. And on next week's show, we have uh, John Livesay. He's an absolute master when it comes to um, using storytelling um, during the sales sort of process. We'll be talking to him. Uh, he's also got a brilliant podcast show as well. So, once again, thanks very much. Any questions, comments, uh, get in touch at, chris at chriscooper.co.uk and uh, wish you all well.